listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Last week we spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, teaching or teachers as being those that can help us crack through the eggshell of our experience. In other words, that each of us is, in some respects, analogous to, as we, as we enter into the spiritual practice, each of us is like a little chick inside the egg. And that what happens is we begin to recognize there's a certain degree of suffering that goes on within that egg. And that shell can be an assortment of uh, different uh, and varied ex experiences. We can, for instance, feel bound by a relationship of some type. Maybe it's an intimate relationship. Maybe it's a situation. Maybe it's a, a relationship with uh, a boss or a job or our own psyche, our own fears. Any of that can actually make us feel kind of caged, if you will, or bound by the shell. And as we recognize that situation of dissatisfaction, we begin to peck. It's a very natural thing. We begin to say somewhere internally, this, is this all there is? Is this, is this it? And we begin to peck. That question right there is actually probably one of the best ways to describe our first major peck at the shell of our existence. Is this all there is? And as we begin doing that, the universe has this amazing way of meeting us with another peck. Okay? And the universe shows up in all sorts of varied forms. It may be a spiritual teacher. It may be a child. It may be a spouse. It may be a job. Any of those relationships actually that are providing us with the degree of dissatisfaction actually are the peck on the outside. We start recognizing that, oh my goodness, every single thing shows up as a teacher at all times. That the universe gives us exactly what we need for awakening. It doesn't give us everything that our ego wants. In fact, it rarely does that. Or if it does, it gives us what we want, and then we want more, and the universe doesn't provide that more, and then we get upset, and there's dissatisfaction, and then we say, is this all there is? And we're back on. So where I'm trying to go with this is to kind of point out, at least initially, that things as they are, exactly as they are, even if they provide a tremendous amount of anguish in our certain circumstance, whatever that might be, specific to our own karma or whatever, things show up to help us. Always. Things show up to help us evolve. And the more we evolve, the more we let go of all the stuff that gets in the way of our generosity, of our love, and our clarity. 
our generosity, our love, and our clarity. Not our greed, hatred, and delusion. But our generosity, our love, and our clarity is very natural. Uh, I was at this monastery in Nepal, and they used to uh, provide us with tea. Um, not the rancid yak butter kind, which is another story entirely, but uh, the, they used to just have this, this spread for lunch, and all of us would come in, we kind of, you know, just take a little bit like this. It was a very, very simple, simple buffet. And at the end were these metal cups, and they're almost like uh, Sierra cups. And then they had this uh, little, it was like a bucket filled with uh, tea leaves, with black tea. And I, I remember thinking, well, wait, there's no strainer. How am I supposed to? And I would just put it into the cup and then put hot water, just like everybody else. I just kind of followed along. And everybody would, would drink their tea and then just kind of spit out their... Uh, uh, the leaves, if there was, you know, uh, leaves that floated to the top, they'd you know, kind of sip around them or whatever. I remember thinking this was the funniest thing in the world and how our practice is actually straining that tea. Our practice, we begin to clarify our experience. We pour from that cup through a strainer and what comes out is more and more and more essential to who and what we are and what we are about. It's very natural. So every moment that we're able to uncover a certain stillness in our experience, any moment that we're able to uncover the clarity that the universe so generously offers us at every single moment, every time we're able to do that, what do we do? We burn away the greed, the hatred, and delusion bit by bit. We clarify. We spit those leaves out. Okay? We get to what's essential what's real, what's left when everything else falls away. Okay? So if you'd like, I, I would really enjoy spitting out some tea leaves together. All right? So what's in a name anyway? Seriously, what's in a name? Is that the essence of who we are? It's a label, and we imbue that label with all sorts of meaning. What, happened, what would happen if that name were taken away from you? What would be left? How about our bodies? If our bodies slowly decided to stop working and they were taken away from us, what would be left? What would be left if our minds started to go? What would be left? These and other great questions uh, put us right on the path of wonder. And that is such a, is such a powerful mechanism for self-uncovery. It's so powerful in this work when we begin to really get comfortable with what we don't know as opposed to what we are absolutely sure of. The absolute surety, as we've talked about before, is the birth, actually, of resistance. 
and resistance uh, lends itself to it progresses. Resistance progresses into violence over time. You can have real mild resistance, okay, or major resistance, but that's kind of how the system works. And what we do is we go to teachings that talk about this. Buddhism, for instance, I think is very, very powerful and specific. The Buddha, the, the, the major teaching, one of the first major teachings that he, he offered was that there are four uh, big bad truths, the four noble truths. And the first one is that life is inherently unsatisfactory the way it is, that, that there's always something, al there's always something. It's always pain, okay? That there's suffering, that there's anguish. In any situation, over time, we will find it. We will find, it'll, it'll show up, that anguish, that pain, that suffering. He then pointed out that there's this cause to that suffering, and that cause is craving, or sometimes I, I refer to it as, as gripping. Okay, we're, we're grasping for something, or grasping for something other than what is, and that fuels then our suffering. And then the third truth he talked about was that there is an end to this suffering. That in fact it's temporary. Even the craving itself is going to be temporary. And then the fourth noble truth is how to get from that space of suffering, craving, greed, hatred, and delusion, and then move into this other space of what we oftentimes translate as wholesome, wholesome thoughts, wholesome behaviors, wholesome expression. I don't really like that word wholesome. I have no idea why, but I just don't really like the word. What's in a name, though? Uh, it's, it's fascinating if you really consider how we function, though, because all this is is then a recognition of what ails, we recognize it, okay? And then we see that the reason it causes anxiety, it causes uh, stress, suffering in us, is because we're gripping to it, we're trying to preserve something, or trying to, uh, we're trying to avoid something. That's it. We're trying to gain more pleasure for our mind or our bodies and we're trying to avoid more discomfort for our mind and our bodies. And then the way we go about this gives us temporary relief. And it's only ever temporary. The new car is only new for a little while. The passionate relationship always gives way to a certain stability, steadiness, and maybe even boredom, all right? The new job, for some reason, a new branch manager comes in and wrecks the whole thing, you know? Whatever it might be, whatever it might be, the lack of money, it's always something. 
It's always something. And so one of the ways that that in us which clings to our name as an identity or clings to our physical health as a, uh, as to, you know, a way of uh, embodying a sense of purpose or clings to our mental acumen as being, you know, you know this is who I am, that clinging, it's, it's really, it, it gets so destructive because what happens is none of those things will last. In fact, nothing will last, <laughs> as, we, as we've talked about. And so clinging is like trying to fend off the waves of the ocean, trying to keep them from happening. And we can't do it. We cannot change the course of a river that's flowing wildly. We can't do it. We get so frustrated. And then every once in a while, something shows up that reminds us, that lets that in us which is pure, good, and true, joyful, expansive, and peaceful, something shows us what's on the other side of all that, what's, what's actually oceanic instead of fighting the ocean. We begin to see as we've used this metaphor for the past several weeks, we've seen how rather than a ping pong ball trying to fight the ocean, it surrenders and becomes one with the ocean. We begin to do that spiritually over time. We begin to recognize that all things, all things, all thoughts, all feelings, all relationships, all purpose, all, everything, everything, everything is temporary. This state that you're in right now is temporary. The state of sleeplessness that I am in presently, <laughs> hopefully, is temporary. <laughs> right? It's all temporary, every bit of it, every bit of, all of this is temporary. Everything is interdependent. Everything depends on everything else. We depend on each other in this room for our lives, our very lives. I know that may sound ridiculous at first blush, but what happens? if Barb suddenly snaps, breaks out an AK-47 and starts wiping out the room, okay? We depend that she will not, I know you wouldn't do that, Barb, that's kind of, kind of out of character, but yeah, never say never, right? <laughs> but it, there was this, uh, there's this, um, there's this sense that we can develop of how deeply dependent we are on not just everybody else and their behavior, but on all other things, how interdependent our actions are with our thoughts, right? The wholesome thoughts, the wholesome actions, then tend to develop, instead of being on this merry-go-round of pain and anguish, we call samsara in Buddhism, we then get off of that merry-go-round and when we live in this wholesome way that recognize fully that everything is temporary, 
that everything is interdependent, we also recognize that everything at its core is infinite. That everything is spirit in action. Everything is spirit in action. And that takes us off of the merry-go-round and into a place where we no longer toil nor spin. We are just blooming. And this offering is available every single second. Every single second that we can actually witness our experience as opposed to being caught by our experience. Every time we can do that, we are often uh, consciously reminded of all that is good and true and beautiful. All that is generous, all that is loving, all that is clear. When we sit still, when is the same thing. With sitting still, we witness our experience. We meet it as it is. When we do that off of the cushion and in our day-to-day, -day, the same thing occurs. And what we essentially are doing is on a physical and mental level, we are allowing muddy water to settle. I remember a little experiment I did when I was like in third grade where we... Uh, we went out into the, uh, f you know, the, there's a little nature area at Vallecito Elementary School, and we, you know, took this stuff, uh, uh, kind of mucky creek water, and uh, I was really lucky because I was able to have a polywog in mine, and uh, it was just really, really, you couldn't see through it, and then lo and behold, uh, within a couple of hours, literally, you started watch watching everything settle. Okay, the same thing happens with our meditation. Everything begins to settle. And then we can rather clearly see what needs to be done. We can see the mud. We can see the flow of this, 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 this river that we, we live, this life that we live. Similarly, we've talked about this before, to use this metaphor again. It's as if during meditation we slow down the flow of life. We slow down the flow of that river. And when we do that, we can see where various detritus, various rocks, various sticks are creating eddies in that flow and we can get caught in those eddies. When we slow it down, we then have the real, real heavy work of actually facing that obstruction. We face the obstruction, we then offer up an appropriate response, we remove it, okay? And then that eddy is able to get, in, in essence, unblocked, okay? The eddy itself is temporary. And this kind of participation is wholesome. When we live lives where we can really watch how we engage the world, we watch how we act in it, and we watch how we speak to it, brings up a whole different kind and quality of experience. And in this way, I think it's real easy to recognize that we are being infinitely, infinitely supported by this universe at every step, at every step, at every step. 
ego would love to change that into another kind of definition. The ego would love to say, okay, yeah, everything's temporary. Okay, everything's interdependent and everything is infinite at its core. Yeah, I can understand that. I can get my mind around that. And when you say that the universe is actually supporting all this, that the universe actually cared, that means it's a loving, there's a loving God, right? I didn't say that. I didn't say that the ego wants to believe that because then it can hold on. Then it can feel safe. It can feel safe. Oh, okay. Uh, stability, stability, stability. But the ego's tendency, indeed, its entire reason for existence is to grasp, to hang on to, to get its arms around, to hold on and try to preserve some semblance of stability when none exists. The universe supports us infinitely by being inherently unreliable. This is really hard to hear. But the universe supports us infinitely by showing us again and again that it's inherently unreliable. We then begin to get comfortable with that scary nature of things. We begin to get comfortable with temporary. We begin to get comfortable with interdependent as opposed to independent and permanent. We begin to get comfortable with infinity. We begin to see that that infinity actually is us. That we are enacting infinity. We are spirit in action. That's off the wheel. That's off the merry-go-round. That's free. That's liberation. And we don't have to be on a cushion to experience that. We don't have to be in a monastery to experience it. We don't have to be in the mountains, in a cave, in the forest. We can do it right here while we're eating dinner. In this life, you do not need more lifetimes for this. You do not need more lifetimes. Does anyone have a question? Yes? Um, the, the part of awakening that I understand is, is meditating. And I can do that. Adya's book about uh, spiritual searching. Uh -huh. is, is that the, um, the true meditation? Is true that meditation. the new book? Yeah. yeah. I guess it's new. Yeah. It's okay. Newest. Good. Okay. And um, how he meditated and meditated, but never felt that he awakened until he realized that that part was missing in his practice. And the questioning, you mean? The, the questioning. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm just wondering, uh, does that take more time of just sitting, having a quiet time, just thinking about, he says, what am I? Mm -hmm. Who am I? And just concentrating on this over and over and not using your head, but sort of Feeling, feeling it. The Boy, I think that's a great technique. I would totally endorse 
first of all, I think he is a contemporary master. I think he's the real deal. Adyashanti, I think, I, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for him as a person, even before he got to be Adyashanti. I liked him when he was just Stevie Gray. I thought he was a marvelous, marvelous guy then, and he is now. So that's number one, that, the thing I wanted to say. And number two, it, it's even more remarkable that he advocates, I'd say both of us kind of advocate this particular question. You've got to question in order to, it's, it's, the, it's the coolest step in this process because we can let the mud settle, so to speak. We can let it all settle down. But in the questioning, it's when we actually transcend the river itself. You know, we, we, we get out of, the, we even get out of the flow. We recognize that it's all one thing. Okay, it's all one thing. That awakening begins to happen when we start wondering, what am I? What am I? What am I doing? What am I thinking? Right? That wonder as we wander, that, that, that curiosity gives us distance between uh, what is real in us and our story. Right? And so I would say for each of us in this room, myself included, that question of what, what am I really? What am I really? What, what am I? I mean, that's, that's what Ramana Maharshi did. Is it a, a mystic in the 20th century, around 1920s, 30s, 40s, and died in, I guess, 1950, 1950, I think it was, or so. And he had this kind of similar type of experience. I think it's a, it's a very powerful technique, which is to re really just ask, you know, what are you? But you don't, you can't do that while you're meditating. <coughs> sure you can. Sure. Yeah, I I think that the, I mean it, it's a it, while while you're in meditation, my, I would advocate actually not having an inner dialogue. I would advocate not having a mantra. I would advocate I those techniques to me I think tend to like we talked about they put the cattle in the chute, right? And when the cattle go into the chute, that you know what happens is then usually there's an explosive uh, kind of. Uh, release that doesn't that doesn't last like giving the cattle a big a big field. And so when we practice sitting, we practice just sitting. During your day, you can do that. You can say your name. You can say your name. You can say, what am I? What am I? And you're gonna come up with ego's gonna come up with these great quips and answers. Uh, I'm a mother, I'm a citizen, I'm a, you, you're all those things. But there's more. There's more. And the questioning allows for that stuff to kind of shake through and openings can occur there. Okay? And as long as that then is met with a, pra a sitting practice of stillness, boy, you've got the perfect formula for stabilizing something as opposed to... Um, uh, having what I would consider to be much more temporary f or fleeting experience of awakening that then turns right back into, you know, obsessive-compulsive living of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
we begin to live that life that I was talking about of, of generosity, love, and clarity as we begin to ask those questions. But I, lo I like what you, yeah, you don't want to, at least the way I'm advocating this, the stillness, be still. And just find another time that's quiet. Yeah. Just... It's really, it's especially, I think, especially good, especially good um, while you're cooking. Cooking can turn into a really cool physical meditation. And that's, those questions, let them show up. But don't forget, like, to, like, look at the recipe if you need, you know, what am I? Damn, too much, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if that... But I don't do it, I mean, I don't do it for the whole hour. Yeah, I think it, sometimes um, um, little little tricks and shortcuts like that I think are very helpful. I know there's actually one, um, I've, I've talked to several people about this, uh, this product that's out that I think is really good, and I, I, I'll share it with you guys. It's called uh, Holosync. And what Holosync does is it actually physically... It has a, a binaural beat pattern that actually creates delta waves in your brain while you're awake. And so it, it pretty much reduces slowly but surely. It brings your brain into this state. And the wave patterns it shows are the kind you have during dreamless sleep. Okay? And um, uh, while I have not you know, been, used this, I, I, I do think that the, I think the technology is really real. It's right on. I think it's, it's really quite cool. Except, it's a technique. It is, it is, it, it essentially works like Prozac would work to help somebody who's really depressed participate in their therapy. If we just do Holosync and don't do anything else, or if we just do mantras and don't do anything else, if we, you understand what I'm saying? If we do this, what happens is we only get part way. It only will take us so far. If a physician prescribes Prozac, the most important thing the patient can do for their freedom is to engage in a very, very serious practice with a therapist that knows what they're doing, to take them into their stuff now that they're allowed to participate. Similarly, something like Holosync or something like mantra work or something like koan study, or I think that's wonderful, as long as <laughs> it's combined with then just sitting. Shh. All you have to do in this work is, is literally sit down, shut up, and just be alive. Pay attention. That's it. That's it. That's the, that's the, the, the whole of the teaching because what that teaching does is that then puts us into this really beautiful space where we can't help but let go. And that's it. Let go. That's it. That's the, that's the whole ball of wax right there. Those two words. Let go. Or if you want to make it one word because you really want to just get done. Surrender. 
then participate. Participate from that place of surrender. Our suffering is not caused by the world or how screwed up it is. Our suffering is caused by our relationship to how screwed up the world is. When we begin to shift that relationship, guess what? The suffering begins to fall away. Our suffering is not caused by our body, by somebody else. Our suffering is caused by our relationship to that body, our relationship to that person and how we want to hang on. Once we let go, we can meet the world as it is. The power in that is really, really quite remarkable. And that will deepen whatever tradition we come from, whichever one. first reading on uh, meditation, one of the first books I read was uh, The Path of Heart, uh, Jack Cornfield. Right, right, right. He talked about, he has a chapter called Training the Puppy, and it, and it was all about watching your breath, and at first, your mind's just, you know, monkey mind, mm-hmm. and you have to bring it back to your breath. Right. And you just keep bringing it back, and bringing it back, and it gets, it gets easier over time, or you get more uh, aware of it, but it's it seemed like the goal of that meditation was to do the same thing that a mantra would do where you're trying to get to where the goal seemed to be focus mm-hmm. so it would grant you the ability to focus on something I never I never got so far so uh, so good at it that I could even see what after I reached that goal would be what I would use that focus on when you, when you, in other words, when, like, when you're able to train your puppy, like mind, into full-on doghood. Right. Is that to the same peak, or is it for a specific purpose, or is because it seems like that's negative space versus positive space doing the way that we meditate, where it's sit and welcome everything that, that comes. Observe everything that comes. It's the, it's not about bringing it back so much as it is observing everything, bringing it back, observing everything. It's less weight put on. Mm-hmm. Focus on this. I think it. Increasingly, my opinion has shifted on this a little bit. Uh, I think when we have practices that really help focus the mind, I think they can. I used to really kind of rebel against that just because I, I, I've seen it work when people just literally sit from their place of, of just a pure natural state and they just watch their experience with total awareness. And, and, and while I think that that's real, I think some people have, I think that's good, I should say. I think that's a powerful way of doing this process. I think some people really have a hard time with that because their mind is spinning so quickly, so fast that it's easier for them to do breath work where they really just watch their breath and watch their breath and watch their, right? So while I don't think that's necessary, I think that allowing ourselves to be in a place with an absolutely still mind, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where everything opens up. 
So how you get there really doesn't matter that much, I don't think, in the long run. I think what matters is that there is not only an appreciation, but also kind of a, a commitment to it, to, to getting into that space and having some discipline. It's, that's, that's the thing that most people hate about, <laughs> uh, hate about this. Is, 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 this is like, it's heavy lifting, and it gets heavier before it gets lighter. Usually, for instance, I can't tell you how many times people will come in, they've only been sitting just for a little while, it's like, I had the weirdest experience, you know, where all of a sudden, blah, 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 and, and, and then my response is, and this, I'm probably clumsy in saying this, but it's like, oh, great, more to let go of. Huh? Let go? No way, man, I want to make, you know, it's like, okay, you had this really cool chunk of beginner's luck. You've been invited to the party. It's awesome, isn't it? Now you ready? You know what I mean? And so this, the, the stillness is just, it's just, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> I hate saying that, but how do you get there? How do you get there? Watch. Participate fully in that watching. And that watcher is always still because it watches what moves. You know, that's the work. That's the work.